Um, but we are going to, yeah, be looking at, at relationships for the next four weeks. The first three weeks, we're going to look at the gospel and relationships. Next week, we're going to look at the gospel and love. And then the third week, we're going to look at the gospel and sexuality. Uh, the fourth week, however, the fourth week is the Super Bowl, and we're just going to have a Super Bowl party at my house. So y'all just come to that. We won't have Crosspoint. And I'm being serious. We're going to have a Super Bowl party at my house. So just come on. Uh, the following week, however, which will be the fourth Crosspoint, but the fifth week, uh, we're going to have a Q&A uh, with three couples from our church, uh, all with very different stories. We're going to be playing some of their stories over the next three weeks um, so you get to know them before we have that Q&A. Um, and this is a Q&A involving really anything around relationships, dating, any of that sort of stuff that you want to ask. Um, and so the way that you will ask that, because I'm not going to let you do it that night because I don't trust you, um, is if you notice on the, the, the paper that you got when you came in, uh, you'll see down there uh, on the flap, one of the sides of the flap talks about, I think it talks about groups or talking about contacting a pastor, one of those. The other side of that flap actually says, what's your question? Um, and you'll see right above that it says February 9th Q&A. Uh, so as I'm talking over the next three weeks, actually I'll be talking two weeks, Kyle will talk one. Um, as I'm speaking about, as we're talking about relationships and things cross your mind, um, I want you to write those down and put those in the silver boxes that are in the back against the wall. That's usually where money goes. Um, but I don't want your money. I just want you to ask, ask questions. Um, and then we're going to filter through those questions, and then we are going to present those to the couples uh, on that fourth week. Um, so feel free, um, especially anonymously, to ask whatever you want to ask. Um, and we want to handle, uh, handle difficult questions. I don't want to handle the same old questions. Uh, so... Um, as we're talking, that's what I want. But um, yeah, so next three weeks. And, and it really emphatically, I want to look at the gospel and relationships. I don't want to just look at relationships. I want to look at the gospel and love. I don't want to just look at love. I don't want to look at the gospel and sexuality, not just sexuality. Um, if we don't let the gospel and a, a paradigm of the gospel shape existence, life, and then obedience... Uh, we will try to be obedient out of some really weird place, and we will never rest fully in the grace of God towards us and the love of God towards us. And we will be constantly trying to be obedient for the sake of pleasing Him in some weird way so that He'll like us, or for some other really weird reason. So I want us to really sink deeply tonight in the gospel, and I'm only going to speak really briefly about relationships, uh, because I think one is much more important and precedes the other. Uh, so tonight is the gospel and relationships. Um, so I'm going to talk for a little while, uh, j just giving us a paradigm of existence and then a paradigm of life that is informed by the values of the gospel. Um, and then we're going to look at relationships. Uh, and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians six fourteen to begin to look at relationships. We're not going to be there for a minute. Uh, this is a pretty famous verse that I I'm pretty sure you all have heard. Um, and I'm going to try to do this in about 25 minutes. Uh, I want to get done. Uh, we are in a, um, we're in just a season at Grace where we're trying to um, worship a bit differently. We're trying to call all of us together into worship. So we're going to, I want to spend a, a considerable amount of time in worship, which is going to be a little different after the sermon. So I'm going to make this quick, talk about the gospel, talk about relationships. Uh, and then I want to lead you guys in, into a bit of a different kind of worship, something we did this morning if you were here. Uh, so, okay, let's get going. 
uh, like I said, it's important that we just uh, we not just understand the gospel and we not just understand God or know about Him, but it's really important that the gospel shapes how we operate and move through life. And I'm going to flesh that out a bit. Um, I'm going to flesh that out a lot, actually. Um, so, actually, I just want to give us a, a paradigm for existence. Uh, I want to give us a lens to view why we exist, what we're doing here, not just in this church, what are we doing alive? Like, what's the point of us even being here? Uh, I want to give us a paradigm to view that in, then to view Christianity in behind that. You'll see as this unfolds. Um, so, just, just with this question, what or why does a perfect and complete being, like a perfectly complete being who needs nothing, is all-powerful, has no wants, no desire for anything, why does a being like that create something outside of itself? And I think you're going to see as, as Scripture unfolds that the answer is really, really quite awesome, uh, but secondly, something we miss quite often. Believe the, the, the reason that a being who needs nothing and is all-powerful and all-good would create other beings is for the purpose of those other beings enjoying Him and enjoying what else He has made. And I don't think we let that permeate the way that we view our lives or the way that we view Christianity even. Why the heck would even God go about creating us? Like, what good does it do Him? And, and I think the answer lies deeply in this idea that he, he desperately wants us to know Him and to be with Him for our own good and for His glory. He doesn't just need us to come to a church and be like, you're good and we're going to sing at you for an hour or so. He doesn't need that. But there's something way deeper down there where He's like, I'm beautiful and complete and loving and good. And as you involve yourself in that, your life becomes complete and loving and good. And he does this out of this like selfless love, this overflow of love and creativity he creates. Um, and, and like I said, I think we might agree with that. Like I think you would look at me and agree with that, but I don't think most of us allow that paradigm and that lens to shape the way we operate through life. Um, let me explain what I mean. I think most of us, and, and I don't think it's like consistent, but I think a lot of the times, and given the way we are, I think we either operate out of, of two other paradigms. We either operate thinking that we exist so that we might be happy, or, and this is what I see in Christianity right now that's really scary, we think that we exist so that we might follow the rules. Like, we, we actually believe that God went to the trouble of creating us for some, like, sheer momentary happiness, or he went about creating us, and this is way more dangerous, so that we might follow the rules. As if, like, me and my wife, like, nine months ago, were talking, and we're like, we should have a baby. And, you know, it'd be awesome. One day we'll tell him to do something, and he'll do it. And it'd just be, that'd be awesome to see that. Right? Like, who has a baby for that reason? And I don't think humans, we're, we're wicked and evil. Like, God, of course, is not like, oh, I'll create this earth and these beings, and then I'll give them rules. And then they'll do them or not do them. It's like, like, 
But I think we literally operate inside of that idea that, that, that God made us so that we'll follow the rules. And I think you see that really clearly. Both of these paradigms, you're going to see both of them in the story of the prodigal son. If you know the story of the prodigal son, I'll just recap it real, real briefly. The story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees, and he said that this guy had two sons. Uh, and, and one of them in the story is this elder brother, and the other one is what they call the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to his father, and he's like, Look, Dad, I don't really care about you, but I know that you're rich and you have an inheritance. And I want my inheritance now because I don't care about you. I want your money and I want your things. And I'm going to take your money and your things and I'm going to go try to be happy with them. As you're seeing in the prodigal son, don't really care about the father. Care about the father's things. And I want to use the father's things to be happy. He does that and it ends badly. Uh, And then you see the elder brother. And you think for a moment that the elder brother is the protagonist, the good guy. But the the elder brother doesn't really care to be with the father either. The elder brother wants to follow the rules to get God's things. And you're going to see that when the prodigal son returns home. The elder brother is, well, he's pissed. He's like, Dad, I always follow the rules and you didn't slaughter a calf for me. You didn't slaughter a calf for me and didn't have this festival for me. And you're going to see the father say, like, all I have is yours. And you're going to see the father hurt deeply by both of these. The father is deeply, deeply hurt by the son who says, I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. I want your, let's take this a level higher. I just, I, I want what you've created to make me happy. I don't really care much about you. So I want to use creation to be happy. And you're going to see the other one is like, I'm, I'm going to follow the rules to get ahead, to be in the right place. And as I do that, Father, you better give me what I believe I deserve. Neither of them care much about the Father. They care about something else. And you see the Father was really deeply hurt by that. I think we operate in there a little bit. I think what motivates our, our, our life on a day-to-day basis is not I wake up, I'm filled and overflowing with the knowledge and resting in that my father loves me. He sent his son to die for me. I am wrapped in his presence. I trust where he's leading me. I don't have to do some song and dance for him to like me. Like he loves me and I'm resting in that and it's beautiful. I think most of us wake up either being like, what am I going to do today? Okay, uh, I'm going to drink coffee. This is me. I'm the prodigal if you don't... I'm going to drink coffee, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to eat a huge meal, I'm going to eat a huge breakfast, I'm going to try to nap, I'm going to eat, like, I just want things to make me happy, to appease something small in me. I'm not much of a rule follower. Uh, and when I was younger, it was, it was like, I'm, I'm going to smoke a little weed, I'm, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get high throughout the day, I'm going to drink a little bit at night, I'm still going to act like God exists, and I'm going to argue with atheists who get high with me about the existence of God. But I really have no interest in being with you, God, um, even though I think you're there. Everything, everything you made is for me. Uh, but I think some of us, some others of us, we wake up and we're like, what have I done wrong today, God? I don't even really open my heart to you because I'm afraid as soon as I open my heart to you, you're going to tell me that I've done something wrong. And I don't really want to know what I've done wrong, but I do want to know what to do. I do wanna, and so there's just like weird turmoil. I've done something wrong, but I do want to be obedient. And so there's just like this weird, like I want to be obedient, but I feel like I'm always messing up. And we always view God through this sort of like, What's the rules? Let me follow the rules. And then as you do good and follow the rules and things don't go the way you think they ought to go, then you get really like, hey, where the heck are you, God? Like, what's going on? 
Like, I've been going to church, reading my Bible, talking to people about Jesus. Why the heck did you let this happen? And so we don't view God through, like, I trust you in all of this. We sort of view through, like, this is for me, and, uh, or, like, like, what's the rules? What's the rules? And we follow the rules. Have I done a good job of following the rules? Have I done a good job of obeying? Have I, you know, have I done a good job? Have I done a good job? Um, and, wow, like, how much we see in the story of the prodigal son that that, like, it's not the desire of God at all for us. It's not the desire of God at all for us. Uh, and so I want to I sort of real briefly show you that from Genesis to Revelation real quick. It's going to take a second. Um, but I think you see in the very beginning, God creates these humans, and he's like, hey, live in this garden. You, like, you're going to work in there, but it's not going to be toilsome labor. Just tend this garden. Anything you want from the garden, take um, and then you see him walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's like, enjoy my creation, enjoy me. Enjoy my creation, enjoy me. But because he's a loving God, he's like, you don't have to, though. We can do this a different way. The door out of this relationship and out of this garden is right there in the middle of the garden. It's a tree. So he didn't just create this rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't just create this rule about that tree because he likes rules. It was obviously, it was honestly like a choice. I'm creating you to be in this relationship with me, but you don't have to be. You can take this whatever way you want to go. And they do, they do. And then what you see immediately, immediately is God comes looking for them. You see the pursuit of God after his creation. You don't see, man, I'm just going to kill you guys and start all over with some people who follow the rules because I like rule followers. Like that's not what you see at all. You see him tell them, hey, here's the fallout from your decision. Here's the fallout. Yeah, your decisions matter, and you're held responsible for them. Here's the fallout. But it's not over, and it's not done. And so you're going to see woven into the curse the promise of the, of, of the Messiah. Right? And so it was always to be with him. And he begins pursuing them again and again. And so you're going to see him come to this guy named Abraham. And he's like, look, I'm going to play this thing out through you. I'm going to create a family from you that's going to turn into a nation from you that's actually going to give birth to the Messiah. And that Messiah is going to bless the whole world. And then you're going to see him be like, okay, I believe that. You're going to see this nation actually born in, in Egypt. And then in Egypt, this nation is born. And then that story of Moses. Moses goes in and gets God's people out of Egypt. After this nation has been birthed, after the father Abraham, this nation is finally, it, 400 and something years it takes for this nation to be birthed. And then Moses leads them out. And you're going to see what happens. The very first words that are said, Moses leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. The seas part. They come across. And God says to Moses, Tell the people, assemble at the mountain, I have brought you from Egypt to myself. And it's like, even from there, God's like, I brought you out of slavery to me. I didn't bring you out of slavery to the promised land. I brought you out of slavery to me. And then he's like, and then I'm also going to bring you to me and let you enjoy my creation. I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And so you're going to see Moses say, look, uh, uh, if you're going to lead us, you have to be with us when you lead us. And so he's like, yeah, that's right. Down, I'm down, Moses. I'm going to lead you by, by fire and by cloud, like day and night. And you're going to see from the very beginning of the nation of Israel, it's about the presence of God among the people. And the people are not happy unless God is with them. And that lasts for like, like, tw- like I don't know, 20 minutes. Um, and the people are like us. And, um, and then you're going to see the nation built. And then you're going to see them get the promised land. And then you're going to see the prophets in this really, really 
aggressive language that just rips your heart out when you read it. Like if you've ever read Jeremiah or Hosea, you're going to see the way God talks about what his people do to him. He talks about his people like like a, a wife who has left a faithful husband. And he uses really strong language in Jeremiah, especially in Hosea too. He uses language like, When you were young, I led you out of Egypt, and I adorned you with silver and gold like a young wife. And then, and this is crazy, in Hebrew, what it actually says in Jeremiah 2 is, and then then you got to the land, and you forgot about me. And then it says this, and then you spread your legs under every tree. It's aggressive language. You spread your legs under every green tree and on every high hill, and you made creation your God. It's super strong language. And he's consistently going to say over and over, like, I led you like a young bride, and then you ran after other lovers. And the language of the prophets is not, you didn't follow the rules, now I'm going to curse you. It's, I loved you, and you left me, and you left me, and I want you back so badly And so in every prophecy that you're going to see about the destruction of Israel, you're also going to see the promise of the Messiah. Destruction is coming, but the Messiah is coming because I want you back so badly. The prophets speak in the language of lost love. They don't speak in the language of start following the rules, start following the rules. I mean, Hosea is the same way. He talks like, I led you out of Egypt like a baby and like I held your arms as you learned to walk. Talking about like a little child, like I held your arms as you learned to walk. And then when you got to the land, you started worshiping other things. You started killing your children and you turned from me and none of the priests ask where is God and none of the shepherds ask where is God. Nobody cares about this relationship that I've been pursuing. And then you're going to see the day that Jesus is, or right before Jesus is born, the angels come to Mary and they say, you're going to name him Emmanuel, God with us. Not the guy who makes the people be able to follow the rules. It's like a pursuit. And you see at every step, God is getting closer and closer and closer to being with his creation again to being with his people again. If we don't let that paradigm of the gospel begin to shape us, that my God, our God, has pursued us and pursued us and pursued us, he is not scared of our disobedience, he's not scared of our rebellion, and he will do anything to restore the relationship, he will really do anything to restore the relationship. If we don't let that paradigm shape us, then when we start talking about relationships, we start talking about obedience, it's always going to come in the form of, okay, if God wants us to follow these rules, and if we follow the rules, he'll give us cool things. Um, right, so Jesus, he comes, and you're going to see what we talked about last week in John 14. This is really beautiful language that Jesus uses in John 14. He's like, I'm coming, I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm going to go to the cross, and as I go to the cross, it's actually going to return you to the Father, and then after I'm gone, don't be scared that I'm leaving, because I know they, they're starting to understand the relational aspect of God again, and then Jesus is like, I'm going to be leaving for a little while, and he's like, but don't worry, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. So you have God going from dwelling with the people of God in a tent to God dwelling with people as Jesus, and then God actually dwelling by the Spirit in us. 
So you're going to see God moving closer and closer and closer to his people till he actually indwells us once again. And union with God begins to happen again after the cross. And so Jesus dies for this purpose. But then you're going to see this illusion in John 14 of Revelation 21. Where you're going to see in Revelation 21 this final thing where, where God says, heaven comes to earth and then God speaks to his people and he says, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to be with you and you're going to be with me. I'm going to bring heaven to earth and I'm going to be with you you and you're going to be with me. And he just says this like three times. So we don't miss the point that the afterlife is not about heaven. It's about life with God. And so you're, you're just seeing throughout this whole thing woven together is God's desire for humanity is life with God. And I don't think we let that paradigm shape the way we just live and exist, but didn't live inside of Christianity. I don't think we do that. Most of the time I don't. I think most of the time it revolves around following the rules right. Is he mad at me right now? Or, yeah, I'm pretty sure he loves me, and so I'm pretty sure he's going to make life good for me. And, uh, and so me and my wife, uh, we, we had our child over, over the, the break, um, and so I'm going to be using a lot of illustrations. I don't know. I'm sorry. It's just all I've been thinking about lately. Um, but it, it, as I was holding him like the third day, it really struck me that I think a lot of times we view what Jesus did really weirdly. So Jesus talks about him going to the cross as being similar to the pains of bearing a child. He says it's really painful. Then there's joy that follows. And so there's all this pain leading up to the redemption and the reconciliation of men back to God. And then he says that, that event is so painful. It's like the birth of a child. And so I was, I was actually in the room when, 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 when Lauren, when she gave birth, and it was crazy and weird. But it was intense, like super intense. I was going to act it out, but that's probably not good. <laughs> but I mean, like, I was just like, like, I don't know, I don't know what to do here. Right? And then this baby comes out, and I'm sort of laughing and crying. And, and then, like two or three days later, we're, we're sitting in the nursery, and I'm just in the rocking chair just sort of looking at him. And I'm just like, God, I love this thing. He's just a, like a new human. And like, I really just am like drawn and like love him and cherish him. And I'm just like, this is crazy. And so God relates what Jesus did at the cross to the pains of childbirth. And I think the way that we view God a lot of times is that Jesus goes through the pain of childbirth and then he's just sort of apathetic towards us. Or maybe not even apathetic, just a little angry with us. And so we view what Jesus did as this painful thing. It'd be like Lauren going through all of that and then we get the baby home and me and her Lauren are like, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll feed him. We'll keep him alive. You know, we're not going to touch him. We'll just sort of we'll let him, like, sit in that little rocker thing, and we'll sort of kick it sometimes to keep it moving so he doesn't cry in our ears. Like, we don't view God as cherishing us even after all the pain that he went through to get us back. And we still, like, seeing the cross and seeing all that he does, we still view, view God through the lens of, like, 
Like, I wish these idiots would shape up. And we don't view God through the lens of a being with all power and is all good and cherishes his creation and will do anything to redeem them and reconcile them. And I think, okay, so as we begin to talk about relationships, we have to view, we have to view life, existence, Christianity through that lens, through the lens of God's incredible desire to be in relationship with us. And I don't want to make light of that. We say it so much it just loses its meaning. When I say relationship, I mean God desires to be involved in every little decision, every big decision, in every little hurt, in every big hurt, in every joy, in every triumph. He desires to care and walk with you and be with you. And when you make mistakes, he's not kicking you. He's like, we're doing good. Get up. Let's keep moving. He wants to build in you and train you and be good to you. Like, that's his desire. He didn't go through the pain of the cross to just be apathetic and angry towards you. If we don't let that framework guide our discussion, it's like we'll set up some boundaries for relationships or we'll set up some wisdom we can use in relationships and we don't let the gospel shape it. It's just like some rules we get so we can get something good out of it in the end. And so I think if you, if you, if you consider uh, Matthew 11, in Matthew 11, 20, it's a really famous verse. Uh, Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. I think you see all of what I just talked about in there. Come to me, right? Come into this relationship. Come into this abiding love that I have for you as the all-powerful creator of the world. Let's come into that relationship first. And then he says, take my yoke. So then here comes obedience in. So I'm not just going to take the yoke off of you, but sorry, I'm take my, take my yoke on you. So here comes obedience after the relationship. Okay, take this yoke on you and learn from me because I'm gentle. I'm not going to kick you while you're down. I'm not going to punch you in the face. I'm not like, okay, I love you. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So in there, you're even seeing the happiness. So I'm not saying happiness is not a part of life with Jesus. I'm just saying it's not the reason you were created. You were created to be with him, and as you are with him, he's going to draw you into obedience for your own good, and he's also going to bring rest and joy, which is something bigger and broader and greater than just mere happiness. So all of that you see in there, like all of it, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me, find rest for your soul. Like he does care for all those little things about it. And he does care that we use his creation for his glory and for our good, like he does. That's what's this part of it. It's just not ultimate, it's not primary, neither is obedience. So if we let either one of those become the primary function of life with God, we just sort of screw this whole thing up. Um, okay, so in light of that, so that may have been the longest introduction ever, uh, go to 2 Corinthians 6, and we're going we're gonna to jump through this real quickly. Um, 2 Corinthians 6.14. And it's in here somewhere. And I know you guys have heard this before. Uh, probably. If you were in a youth group growing up, this is probably on the wall somewhere. Okay. Uh, 6.14, I'm going to read all the way to 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That just basically means wickedness or the person of wickedness. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So you're seeing God dwelling us. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. So see, you've seen this. The view of Paul is life with God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? We've just talked about that. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And then even more, this relational. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay, so we've heard that. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Y'all have heard that, right? Does it make you angry to hear it? Maybe not because you don't want to do that, but because, like, you've heard it way too much. And, like, maybe a face comes to mind. Like maybe somebody you were in a relationship with and somebody kept saying, don't be a good unbeliever. And you're like, screw you, man. <laughs> um, I just want to do, uh, really, we're going to jump through this really quick. Um, this is obviously not in the context of dating because dating doesn't exist here. Um, so Paul's not writing like, hey, all you high school girls, don't be unequally yoked with that guy who smokes weed. Um, basically the context is Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth is in the middle of just a pagan city. And so interaction uh, with idolatry is, 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 is right at their doorstep. And you see people start beginning interacting with, uh, with pagan temples. Um, and then you see people creep into the church that start teaching things uh, that are not in line with the gospel that Paul preached. And so there's this struggle going on. Um, and so I think Matthew 11 sheds a ton of light on this text, right? Um, and I'm not even talking about dating relationships right now. As I talk about not being unequally yoked, I'm talking about any relationship ever that you might be in with anyone ever. Friendship, non-friendship, whatever. A relationship with a person. He's saying do not be unequally yoked. Do not yoke yourself with someone who is not going the same direction that you are going. And why does that make sense? Well, well Jesus' call on the life of us is... Take my yoke on you and learn from me. And I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your soul. So as we take the yoke of Jesus on us, and then we're like learning from him, learning what it is to be alive with God, learning what it is to take our guilt and our shame and our fears and our failures, put them on the cross, receive the love, the acceptance, the joy that goes along with being part of the people of God. As I rest in that and follow in that and learn what obedience looks like and learning to be wise and make good use of my time so that I'm honoring to the Lord and I'm building His kingdom and that I'm filled with the joy of being used by the Lord for the purpose I was created for, as I walk in that and then I go to yoke myself with someone else and connect them to me, if they're not going that direction, if they're not, yoke, if they're not yoked by the Matthew 11 yoke of Jesus, do you see how this obviously is just going to pull your head off? Right? If Jesus is going this way and then that other dude you're yoked to is going that way or that other chick you're yoked to is going that way, this is painful for you. It's not painful for Jesus or the other person. You got two yokes on you, each of which are being pulled in two different directions. 
And so the, the thing is, is do not be in any sort of relationship where you are yoking yourself. And what does it mean yoking yourself? And so any relationship that you are in is going to have spoken and unspoken expectations and commitments. Any relationship you're in, whether it's friendship, whether it's dating, whether it's marriage, it's like the higher you get up in the ladder, the more you talk about the expectations and the more you talk about the commitments that are involved. But pretty low on the ladder, like we're just friends, we just hang out. There's unspoken commitments and expectations that are involved in that. And that's a yoke. And so let's start at the bottom, right? Start at the bottom. Is Paul saying you can't be friends with people who are not believers of Jesus? Well, let's look at this rightly. If you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to automatically say no, and I agree with you. The answer is no. You're going to live, and you're going to have friends who are not believers. But something that I need to make really clear, if you are not secure in the Lord and understand what it means to walk with the Lord in a way that brings life to you, that you are secure and affirmed by Him and living with Him, you feel life with God, and you understand what that means, and you're finding security in that, what is going to happen is even the friends that are around you have unspoken commitments and expectations, and if you are not secure in the Lord, you will find your folding underneath their expectations and their commitments because you are not secure in the Lord enough to do what you feel like the Lord is calling you to do. So you will do what the people around you are calling you to do. Because in that you find affirmation, you find security, you find friendship, you find things that we as humans need, but it doesn't really ever fill you up. So would I say it's okay to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Is it okay for you to be friends with unbelievers? Yeah, if you know how to be secure in the Lord and not let them shape your life. But if you don't know how to do that, you need to learn what it means to be secure in the Lord and firm in the way to walk with Him, or else they're going to ruin your life. Period. Like, they are going to take you down a path you do not want to go. So, like, be really careful who you're friends with. Not because God is looking at you like, that's a bad person. He says cuss words. Like, what? Are you serious? God, like, deeply desires life and freedom in you. He, he, he loves you and wants the best for you. And he, and, and he said you'll find rest for your soul. You'll trade rest for your soul for like, that person thinks I'm cool. Sort of. But they really don't deep down. Because I'm really just like following what they do and they see that. You see where I'm going here? If you have security in the Lord, yeah. Yeah. Make friends with a million unbelievers. Go to parties with them. Like, be a, a, a life-giving presence in their life. If you're not secure in the Lord, do not go to parties with them. You're stupid. Stop it. Okay. Okay, let's take a step up. Dating relationships. In this dating relationship, dating is a very funny thing. Oh, goodness. Uh, sorry. Uh, Joe was going to buy me wings if I stayed in 25 minutes, and I didn't. Now I've got to buy him wings. Uh, it's okay. We'll make this quick. Uh, right now in our society, uh, dating has two purposes, to find a compatible mate or a socially acceptable place for you to explore physically with another person. Finding a compatible mate or a socially acceptable place for you to get naked with another person without people saying anything, because y'all are dating and you love each other. Okay. Let's start with the first one. 
If you're dating to find a compatible mate, that's cool. I'm not into the courtship thing. I don't know. You might be. You might have read some great books on it, and it might be wonderful. I just don't have any idea. I was born in a place where people dated, and so I dated people. I made some good, good decisions. I made some terrible decisions. But as I understand the way that the Lord would walk this out is I am not going to make commitments spoken or unspoken with someone who is not yoked with Jesus. So are they a compatible mate? Are they yoked to Jesus? Do you see them finding rest in their soul through the gospel? Do you see them wanting to follow in obedience the commands of the Lord for their own life so that they might be in a life-giving relationship with the creator of the universe? Do you see that? No. Don't do it. You can't save them. You can't, can't do anything for them. You can hang out with them. Go right ahead. But don't do it really late. Don't be dumb. Okay. So if you're looking for a compatible mate, it's quite obvious. Don't yoke yourself. If they are going that direction, yeah, go on some dates. Stop being lame. Like, go do stuff. And if you're a guy, like, step up. Ask some questions. Like, be forward. Let's, let's walk this thing out. Find a chick and take her on a date. It'll be sweet. She may shoot you down. That's fine. Do it anyway. You'll be stronger afterwards, sort of. But, okay, but do this with people who are going the direction that you're going that want the life that you want, or else some hot chick is going to ruin your life because she's only hot, and she's like two inches deep, and she has no desire to follow the Lord. Like, come on. This is obvious, sort of, but you got all these emotions. Okay, dating for fun. I'm not trying to be aggressive here, but dating for fun? Is it even that fun? The only way dating is fun is if it really is your end goal to have some sort of physical relationship with this person. And you are trying to be obedient to the Lord, then that's not on the table. So then dating for fun is you like hanging out with people and trying really hard not to unbutton their pants. Like seriously? You really think dating for fun you're, you're, no, I do not want to marry this person at all, but I do want to sit closely to them and try not to be physical with them. If you're dating for fun and you really are a believer, of, like, if, if you don't believe in Jesus and you're not following the Lord, like, and you're still like, trying to understand if God exists, and I, I feel that. Like, I'm speaking to people who are like, believed in the Lord and they're really trying to walk this out. If you're still trying to land on that first thing, the gospel is where we need to talk this thing out. Obedience to the gospel is second to the gospel. But if you're trying to walk this out, then, then dating for fun probably means that you need a degree of affirmation from another person to fill you up because you don't know what it means to be secure in the Lord. So you're looking for that security in another human being. And it feels really good for a couple weeks until you find out that that person is investing their hope in you and placing their hope for happiness on you and you find out that's a terribly crushing weight because they are not yoked to the Lord and finding their happiness and love and acceptance in him where else are they going to find it another human it just happens to be you so while you're sucking them dry for affection and acceptance they're doing the same to you until both of you find oh my gosh when this runs out we have nothing to stand on and nothing to hope for other than each other and so now we place an incredible unbearable weight on each other doesn't sound like fun. So is there such thing as dating for fun? I don't think so. Not if you're a Christian. I don't. Sorry. If you're dating for a mate, it can't be fun. So 
yeah, that's really all I want to say about relationships to begin this. We're going to look at love and sexuality over the next two weeks. Um, of course, then there's a Q&A, and so ask, ask some questions. But I, I think as we view and understand life and existence and then Christianity through the lens of my Father loves and cares for me, wants relationship with me, wants to lead and guide this thing out. He has plans for me that are good, that are for the glory of his name, the advance of his kingdom, and my good then learning to like stand firm in what you may or may not be feeling, learning to be wise with who you are committing yourself to and placing yourself under their expectations becomes a little more, I want to say easier, becomes a little more clear the way that should play itself out.